Bibles out, we've been talking about the seven churches in Asia in the book of the Revelation, and we're going to continue to talk about that. And so open up to Revelation chapter 2, and we're going to continue the series on what we've entitled, What Would Jesus Say If He Could Stand Up and Speak to Us Today? I realize the Lord still talks to us, and uh, He can still minister His Word, and we can still read it in the Bible. But uh, there in Revelation 2 and 3, we just find a unique couple of chapters that he specifically is addressing the church in some unique situations and locations there in about A.D. 90, somewhere in that particular area. And I'd often wondered, what would it be like if he could come today and sort of stand behind, you know, the acrylic lectern and in the flesh, just sort of share his heart? And this may be as close to getting that type of understanding as, as maybe we'll get to un, until that day when we're all gathered and we do get to see him face to face. And so we've been talking about the church. We've been talking about what the church is, what the church was designed to do. We told you in the introductory lesson, which by the way, if you'd like to catch up, as was mentioned on the screen, you can go to LegacyCathedral.org, hit the podcast. And you can listen to it at the convenience of your own computer. In fact, you could even put it on your iPod if you have one. And you could listen to me all day long. Wouldn't that be something? I don't know if that's good or bad, but that, that, that is possible. But you can catch up. But just to kind of catch our spirits up this morning, we talked about how the church in the Greek language is called the ekklesia. It comes from two words put together, ek and kalo, kaleo. It actually means the called out ones. And we're called out to change our environment. We're called out to change cities and nations, regions. We're called out to have an impact on what's going on in the earth. God's plan to reach a world was certainly through the cross and through the sacrifice of his son. But it was through his church that that message was to get out. And so we have an important and unique place in, um, in his agenda in the earth. And we're to penetrate the culture. We're to... We're to demonstrate to the culture how life is to be lived in the kingdom. We're not perfect people, but we are uh, tenaciously, resiliently pursuing God in every way, shape, and form in our life. And today, we want to continue because we're stopping on our third stop on our tour of the seven churches to a place called Pergamos. Now, some of your Bibles will say Pergamum. You say, what's the difference? There is no difference. It just depends on how it was translated, Pergamus, Pergamum. It was a coastal city, much like the previous ones we have mentioned, uh, with Ephesus, and um, the other church was, what was it, Smyrna. And uh, those were coastal cities as well. Uh, Pergamus was a coastal city. It was not nearly as commercial as the previous two cities. Um, every time you look at a coastal city, I can't help but think about our own city. And you'll see features in all of these cities that are a lot like Charleston. Not every feature is like our city, but you just can begin to relate to some of it. Pergamus was not as a commercial a center, although it was noted for three distinct things. Three distinct things at the church there at Pergamus. Number one is they had a phenomenal library. In fact, we are told that it was second only to the library at Alexandria. Alexandria being one of the wonders of the world. And uh, they said they had a library in Pergamos 
that was second only to that great library. Number two, there was the altar of Zeus, an ancient Greek god. In fact, the, the, the statue, the sculpture of Zeus actually was about 40 feet high and it stood on top an 800-foot mountain. And so when you would sail into the port there at Pergamos, one of the first sights you would see is that ancient altar of Zeus and that statue. And then thirdly, and I'm not sure if I have the actual pronunciation right or not, but at Pergamos there was the worship of Asclepius, I guess. Asclepius, who was, as we are told in their particular mind, was the god, little g, the god of healing. And we are told that when people would go to this particular temple and worship, that in that particular era, those temples would resemble uh, uh, an ancient hospital. And their priests would actually resemble doctors of sorts. Now that is not to uh, put any reflection upon modern medicine. It's just simply to say that in those particular days, uh, people's religion and their medicine was closely intertwined. And they would go to those particular temples and there they thought they could find healing. They would actually flock to those temples, much like a hospital. And so all of these were features of the city of Pergamos. But there was something that was going on in the church that was planted there. And the Lord wanted to speak to it. And once it was put into scripture, if you can imagine whatever church environment or whatever church culture had developed that the Lord was beginning to address, it would be forever memorialized for the next at least 2,000 years that we know of, because here we are, it would be forever memorialized in the pages of the Holy Bible, the Scripture. And so uh, it's interesting. It's interesting as to how a church needs to function. We, can I just stop? I'm just sharing this point. What we do today will be forever memorialized to the generations to come. You need to get a hold of that. However you choose to live your life, however you choose to live for God, however you choose to function in the world right now, you're memorializing something that will forever be remembered. You need to stop and consider that. Because one day someone's going to give a eulogy for you. Someday someone's going to reflect back to your life. Someday somebody's going to say something concerning who you were and what you did and how you lived. And I don't know about you, but I, I may not be around to hear it and I might not think it's all that important now. But I want them to remember me in such a way that it made an impact and a difference and there was some form or fashion of legacy that was left. You need to consider that. I, I don't want someone sitting around a table someday generations from now, if Jesus tarries, and say, Why do you remember, you remember great, great granddad Kevin? Oh boy, was he a character? Well, they may say that anyway, but at least... They could say he was a godly character. It works that way for churches too. So I want to teach just for a few moments on what I've entitled concerning the church at Pergamos. Trendy, but not truthful. Trendy, but not truthful. Let's read it here. Revelation 2, beginning with verse 12. To the angel of the church in Pergamos write, These things says he who has the sharp two-edged sword. I know your works and where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, and you hold fast to my name and did not deny my faith, 
even in the days in which Antipas was my faithful martyr, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you, because you have there those who hold the doctrine of Balaam. The doctrine of Balaam. ...who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel... ...to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit sexual immorality. Thus you also have those who hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans... ...which thing I hate. You might want to underline that. I'll get back to that in just a minute. Verse 16. Repent... Or else I will come to you quickly and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna to eat. And I will give him a white stone and on the stone a new name written, which no one knows except him who receives it. Trendy, but not truthful. You know, we kind of live in an era, and maybe every era is like this. I don't know that I can address that, but... I can tell you that we live in sort of a trendy era. It's an era that if certain people or certain groups of people do or say whatever they do or say, we tend to pick it up and we at times can run with it. So I'll give you an example. If, for instance, someone or the celebrity crowd of Hollywood decides that they're going to uh, enjoy a certain form of music, if they're going to wear a certain form of, of fashion, if they're going to go to a certain place, uh, it becomes trendy and, and we all sort of pick it up. Do you, know, do you know that right now that there are clubs and bars that pay celebrities hundreds of thousands of dollars to show up at their establishment in order that they can become trendy? They have to pay people to get them to come. And then they know that the vast population will want to be trendy and seen with those folks and they'll stumble right along. We know the fashion designers in Paris... ...will create certain fashions and if they put it on the right celebrity or the right model... ...that it becomes trendy and it will sell and all sorts of people will want to have that particular fashion. And so we all know that there are certain things in our culture and in our era that become trendy. Well, the church apparently at Pergamos apparently was trendy but it wasn't always truthful... And one of the sad remarks, I guess, with regards to church environment or church culture is that at times we tend to want to be trendy too. Now, there's nothing ostensibly wrong with trendiness. I'm all for being relevant. How many of you know? I I want to be relevant. You want to be relevant. I I don't want to put polyester on my body anymore. I mean, I, you know, there are just certain things that that should be banned. Leisure suits and... I mean, I'm not there anymore. And and, and so I'm all for being up to date and relevant. I I think we ought to be up to date. We ought to have a way to be be relevant in our communication and, and how we present the gospel and present the word. There's nothing wrong with all of these things. But to be trendy is not to hide the truth. You've still got to proclaim the truth. And apparently here at Pergamos, they were trendy but they were beginning to be a little shaky on the area of truth. It tells us here, as we've read it to you, that they had no problem professing and using the name of Jesus. In fact, it says here in verse 13 that they even spoke the name of Jesus and endured some local persecution because they held to the name of Jesus. But there was a group, they say, that is here that held to a doctrine 
that was causing Jesus to be irritated. Now, I want you to think about this for just a minute. Can you imagine in your mind, for just a moment, Jesus being mad? The reason I ask that is because I believe there are, have been moments or times in our present era that when Jesus is presented to us, oftentimes he's presented as our, our best friend, our bud, our compadre, you know, my main man, the guy upstairs. You know, there's all sorts of ways that we present him and we've sort of kind of brought him down in, in such a way that he's just sort of this guy who's sort of like the benevolent granddad or he's kind of like the, the just the soft-spoken uh, life design guru who just, you know, smiles and says they're there and I want to help you and it'll get better. And, and that's sort of the only image we get of Jesus. But we need to pause for just a moment because these are his words. It's in red in my Bible. And it says here that there's something going on that he hates. He hates it, he says. And the most revealing part of this that I never saw before was verse 16. And in verse 16, this is what he says. He says that if this group that holds to a doctrine or a teaching did not hear the voice of the Lord and turn away from this doctrine, Jesus says, I will personally fight against it. Now, can I just share this with you? If, if we were taking bets this morning, if we were betting people, and we were taking bets this morning concerning a fight with Jesus and someone else, who you betting on? Yeah, man, I, I, I'm not going to be on the other side of an equation with God. God wins every time. Now, the question is, well, who's the group? What doctrine could solicit such a response from the Lord? And it says it's the doctrine of Balaam or this group called the Nicolaitans. Now, you need to understand these two terms are ostensibly synonymous. They mean almost exactly the same thing. Let me give you just a little background on the Nicolaitans. Apparently, there was in the early church, as leadership was beginning to be defined and appointed, there was, there was a, a, a proselyte in Acts 6, verse 5, by the name of Nicholas. Nicholas, if, if, if think about this, was one of the original deacons that was selected by the early apostles. Nicholas was a part of that first group who was going to be recognized in the early church in this capacity. Now, just having thought about him being the first group and then, you know, remember now, if, if, if you aren't right with God, you die and they carry you out of church. Are you, are you with me? Early church stuff here, all right? Ananias and Sapphira. So, I mean, the fear of the Lord is there. There's a reverence. People aren't messing around with God. I mean, there is an authority and, and a reverence the likes of which we may have never seen since. But, but they picked these particular people. He's one of them. And as best as we can determine, Nicholas begins to serve in the church as a deacon. And he begins to be promoted by the Lord to a place of apostolic stature. Now, how do I know that? I know that because he begins to have the ability to teach doctrine. And in the early church, only those of apostolic stature... ...could begin to teach doctrine. It was reserved for those in that particular office. And it's at this point... ...that through his teaching... ...and his visibility and his influence... 
that he begins to release an error in the church which Jesus says that he hates. Now, this error becomes so popular, this error becomes so widespread, this error becomes so infectious that out of the seven churches that are mentioned in the book of the Revelation, three of the churches are specifically addressed with regards to this particular error. Now, I just did a little math, and I found out that was 43%. 43% of the churches had this problem, at least that we're aware of, of a doctrine that Jesus says he hates. And we need to remember at this particular point that what Jesus says he hates isn't coming from the outside trying to encroach and make its way to the inside. Jesus said this is something that's going on the inside that needs to be addressed. Now, this teaching was also linked to the Old Testament prophet Balaam. It says the doctrine of Balaam and the teaching of the Nicolaitans were almost exactly the same. Now, what's this error that Jesus hates? What, 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 what's, what's this error that Jesus says, I, I hate it, I don't want anything to do with it. And, and he names two things specifically here in the Bible. Two things concerning this error. He says, number one, they are eating things that are being sacrificed to idols. That's the first thing. He says, I hate that. And then number two is, he says, that they were committing sexual immorality. Now, you would think to most redeemed people, that would make sense without much explanation. You would think to most redeemed people that you ought not hang around idols and that you ought to keep yourself morally clean. But what what many don't realize is that in that day, sex outside of a covenant and the partaking of things that were idolatrous were so common in that culture at Pergamos and in Asia. It was so common that everybody just participated in it like it was second nature. Most folks don't know their Bible well enough to realize that the first church fuss that ever happened took place in Acts chapter 15. The first church fight, so to speak, was over the issue of how Gentiles were to enter into this new thing called the church. Up to Acts chapter 15, most of the converts to Christianity were Jews. And so the Jews had a a certain understanding. The Jews had certain things that were foundational in them already as they opened up their hearts and they received the Messiah, Jesus Christ. But all of a sudden, these Gentiles were accepting Jesus Christ as their personal Lord and Savior, and they didn't have all the same foundations that the Jews had. And so they were coming to the equation in a little bit different, with a little bit different background or a little bit different understanding than all these Jews were coming into the kingdom with. And, and the first church fight was over the issue of circumcision. And so they were debating whether or not the men that were being converted out of their Gentile status and coming into the church, did they have to become Jews first before they could become Christians? And of course, the Holy Spirit spoke directly to this situation And what the Holy Spirit said through that apostolic council, James came out and said it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us that the Gentiles could be received into the church just as they are without circumcision because it was no longer circumcision of the flesh, but now it was circumcision of the heart. Now that's good news for you and me. But what we don't oftentimes know is that when they were brought into the church, there were still two conditions 
two foundational points that come up several times in the scripture that had to be placed upon the Gentiles because they had become so inundated or inculcated with the culture. They were so immersed in the culture that when they opened up their heart to Jesus, they were genuine and they were sincere, but they had to look at them and they had to give two stipulations. No, we're not going to make you go get circumcised. Praise God. But there are two things we are going to ask of you as you come into the church. And this is the part that doesn't get taught that much. And the reason it doesn't get taught is because the Jews understood this automatically because of their culture. Even, even, a, even a backslidden Jew, for instance, knew you ought not be worshiping idols. Because they grew up in a Jewish home and they'd heard that taught by the rabbis. And so they understood certain things, whether or not they were living it, they at least understood it. But the Gentiles didn't understand that stuff. They weren't taught that stuff. They just grew up in the heathen temples and they come into the church and they said two things we want to make sure the Gentiles understand as they come into the early church. Number one is that you're to give up your association with idols. Now that makes sense, doesn't it? I mean, you can't be worshiping idols and then say Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. So they were told, you've got to give up your idols. And they would begin to fuss about this. Paul would address it. Others would address it with regards to what do you do with meat sacrificed to idols? What do you do? And all the rest. And they'd have all these discussions. They asked the early Gentiles to give up their association with idols. Secondly, believe it or not, they said, Gentiles, you're to quit your sexual activity outside of a covenant. Now, I know this will almost make you grin and chuckle and go tee-hee, but it's, it's sad when you begin to understand that in those days, Gentiles would go to their pagan churches. There were temple prostitutes. They were, they were fertility cults, basically, that they would worship in, and that was glorified. And so, to them going to church, what's the big deal? Everybody's having sex. Everybody's doing it. Nobody's... Nobody's obeying what God described as a covenant. And, and, and so that was second nature to the Gentiles. Now, again, I don't know about you, but it seems to me, just working with a redeemed mind, that that seems to be a fairly reasonable request of the Holy Spirit. What do you think? Get rid of your idols and quit having sex all over town. I mean, that's, I mean, it just seems reasonable to me. Call me old-fashioned, but it just seems pretty reasonable to me. Well, you say, well, okay, what does all that have to do with Nicolaitans? Well, Nicolaitans basically taught, listen to me, that it was permissible. In fact, it was even desirable to live unrestrained lives. They taught what I would call, this is just how I would label it, they taught, Nicolaitans taught a false freedom a false freedom what, what, what's a false freedom a false freedom is is you can do whatever you want to do and nobody's going to tell you any different and that's a false freedom you know a false freedom can actually be anarchy if you just if you allowed society to do anything they wanted to do this place would be anarchy that's why we have some boundaries called laws right because you can't yell fire in a crowded movie theater you, you know, you can't just jump in your car and decide you're going to have a demolition derby out there on Sam Rittenberg. You, you, you can't just do anything you want. There are boundaries to our freedom. 
But there are many who think that freedom means I, I can pretty much do whatever I want to do. Now, I, this is just me. I get, I, get, I get chuckles. I know I have a weird sense of humor and I get my chuckles different ways. But I was reading some comments from early church writers that, that nobody else would even read or pay attention to. But I, I think some of these are kind of funny. Um, Hippolytus, for example, called the Nicolaitans, now, shamelessly unclean. Clement of Alexander said that Nicolaitans abandoned themselves to pleasure like goats. The only thing I would say to that is that might offend a goat. But every commentator said that this group was the most dangerous. Is that not interesting? I read liberal people and conservative people and every single one of them, bar none, said it was the most dangerous of all the early heresies. They taught, the Nicolaitans taught that we are not under any law, so we can do anything we want. Ah, wrong answer. They said that we are all sinners, therefore no one sin is different than any other sin, so it doesn't matter what conduct you exhibit, and of course you can't judge it. Ah, wrong answer. In fact, they said we are so defended by the grace of God that everything is permissible and can do you no harm. Eh, wrong answer. See, a, a Nicolaitan, if he were driving through town, listen to me very carefully, would say this. This would be on their bumper sticker. A Christian isn't perfect. Just forgiven. And they would take it as far as it would go. You see, the Nicolaitans never addressed the very issue that Jesus died to release us from. The Nicolaitans thought sin was a non-issue. They never addressed it. They just accommodated it. They would say, well, you know, we love Jesus. That's exactly the point that was going on here. They held fast to his name... They would say, if you asked a Nicolaitan, do you love the Lord? They would say, well, of course I love Jesus. He forgives everything. And indeed, that's true. He can forgive any and all sin. But the problem is what they tacked on to the end is that he won't really care what I do because he'll forgive anything, anytime, at any moment. And we've got to call time out right there and say that's not exactly true. There's some things he hates. And as I began to read about him, I found that the bigger issue was is that the claim of the Nicolaitans was this. Listen to this. This is what they would say. They would say, we're not destroying Christianity. They would say, we're presenting a new and improved, updated version for AD 90. Now, I'm all for being relevant and I'm all for being trendy and I enjoy a lot of the new things that come into the culture and, and, and I like some of the technology and all those things are wonderful aspects and, and, and there's an appropriate place that that can come into our lives and be applied but we cannot be trendy and not be truthful I mean imagine for just a minute because we've linked ourselves up with the Lord think about this for just a minute the, the Bible says that when we accept Jesus Christ we become the bride of Christ so in other words as a believer I'm, I'm a part of his bride there's a marriage that has taken place. Now, we've got a lot of moms here today. And, and, and I can tell you because I've sat with enough women in counseling situations and in other uh, various uh, uh, 
interactions and forums with regards to their relationships. And I can tell you right now, there would not be a woman in this room who would stand for one minute, a husband, that would come to her and say, Honey, I love you. I love you with all my heart. Yeah, I love you. I'd never deny that you were my wife, but I just want you to know I am going to be sleeping around town. Wow. Now, if, if, if you weren't shot, guys, I guarantee you that wouldn't float. You know why it wouldn't float? Because there would be something in that that would intuitively arise within the woman that would say, you know what, that's not how it's supposed to work. There's supposed to be a faithfulness. There's supposed to be a connection. There's supposed to be something that, that happens here that whether, that whether you're with me or you're at work or wherever you are, there's supposed to be this faithfulness that begins to take place. Well, folks, the Nicolaitans, that's ostensibly what they were saying. They look at you straight-faced, smile on their face, they got their Bibles underneath their arms, look at you and say, sure, I love the Lord. I love the Lord, but the Lord understands that I'm just, you know, we're, we've all sinned. You know that verse. Yeah, we, well, I know you know that verse. It's the one you practice rather regularly. I understand that. We've got to get that picture in our particular mind. The, the Nicolaitans, the reason Jesus was irritated with Nicolaitans was because they were really worse than those who were pagan or they didn't even believe. Because think about this. If you have an unsaved person... If you have a non-believer and they're out there practicing, functioning their, their, their sinful ways and their sinful behavior, how many of you know they're at least living up to their state? They're not being hypocritical. They're in no way being um, inconsistent. In fact, many of them would say, I don't want God, don't want nothing to do with God, and I'm just going to live my life in exactly that way. And, and, and so they're just living what they already profess. The problem is, is that the Nicolaitan looked like a pagan, but all the while was saying, well, I love the Lord, and I go to church, and I listen, and my interpretation of the Bible says that what I'm doing is okay, and Jesus says, I hate that. I hate that stuff. Now, the question isn't that you just expose it, but the question is, how do you combat it? How do you, how do you begin to turn it? Because can I just say in our era... The Nicolaitan spirit has not gone away. I'm telling you, Jesus doesn't consider the Nicolaitan spirit the church. I'm not being sectarian. I'm just telling you what the Lord said. And we've got to understand that if we're the church, if we're to be the church, and again, we're not the only church... There are wonderful, good, godly men and women in this city that go to churches all over the place, all over the nation, all over the world. And we affirm that there are a lot of good people preaching the cross and repentance and seeing people set free. And so I understand that I'm not the only one declaring it, but right now I'm the only one you got. And, and, and we need to understand that if we're to be the church, that we've got to begin to combat in a way that Jesus says is appropriate and how it's supposed to be done in order that we can begin to demonstrate to the world that there is a difference. That grace doesn't excuse me, it empowers me. That the victory I can have in my finances and the victory I can have in my addictions and the victory that I can have in every uh, arena of life can spill over into relationship and spill over into to personal conviction and spill over into all sorts of areas. And it's not bondage. I've not been set free to be in bondage. I've been set free to serve God with all my heart. 
See, that's what freedom is. Freedom wasn't letting you loose just so you could do whatever you wanted to do and you're free. Freedom is you are loose from the deceiving destruction of sin. It may not get you there tomorrow, but it will get you there eventually. And you've been set free from that in order that you can love God, receive his goodwill, live all out for him. And when life's all said and done and everybody's sitting around the coffee table talking about you, they'll look at your life and they'll say that life made a difference. It touched me. It changed me. It, it, it made a difference in the environment where it was placed. God does that for churches too. Amen. And so that has to be combated. And the Lord says, I combat that with the sword of my mouth. He says, that's how it's going to be fought, with the sword of my mouth. The sword of my mouth. What does that mean, the sword of my mouth? I've come to the conclusion without a lot of instruction that that sword, that imagery of Jesus with that sword out of his mouth, basically means that this is combated by the declaration of his word. His word, the Bible says, is sharper than what? Any two-edged sword. When you begin to speak the word of God, when you begin to speak that enlivened, quickened, rhema word of God, there's a power to it. It's the sword of his mouth. And it's obviously the imagery of a spiritual battle. We can't make anybody do anything. You know what? Every now and then i got to be reminded of that. I, I want so badly for people not to mess their lives up and not to fall into destruction that you want to just grab them and go wake up but you can't do that all you can do is declare the truth and when there's an anointing and when there's a prophetic anointing to that it begins to fight against that particular era we need to remember the flesh will never be defeated by the flesh the flesh will be defeated by the things of the spirit and I am convinced that there is a prophetic anointing that is coming to us. It is already beginning to be made manifest. And the Lord is going to give us an authority and an anointing to begin to speak some words, truthful words, lovingly. But it's going to begin to set people free. That's how you battle this. You've got to set people free. The only answer to fighting wrong doctrine is not getting in a doctrinal fight. It's beginning to speak and apply and minister the doctrine that is truth and let the fruit demonstrate the truth. You start setting people free, nobody can argue with that. If, we, if people live in their error, they may live forever in their error. You may have a hundred conversations, but you set one person free that challenges that error and they've got nothing more to say. And so we've got to understand that's a spiritual thing. And there are four areas I think we all must begin. This isn't just me. I realize on Sunday it kind of falls to me because my job description as pastor is to teach you God's ways and to help you in God's ways. But all through the week, all of us have this responsibility that we must begin to speak under a prophetic anointing. You may not feel, you know, when an anointing comes, you don't always have to get goosebumps and a buzz. An anointing can come and you not feel anything. You just have to be faithful. To let the sword of the word begin to come out of your mouth. And I believe there are four areas we can all begin to speak under prophetic anointing. Number one, we've got to begin to preach full repentance. The reason Jesus says repent to all the churches is because they did not understand what it really meant. I know, Johnny One Note. Here you are again, Pastor. You're back on repentance. Yes, I am. Repentance is more than 
I'm sorry. Re- listen to me. Repentance. I heard this this last week. It reminded me last week. Listen to me. Repentance is agreement with what God has said. If God says something's wrong or something's right, and let's say you're doing what's wrong or you're not doing what's right, if God has said it and he makes you aware of that particular thing, repentance means you agree with what God has said about it. Are you with me? Very, very important. Because a lot of times we'll come forward and and do this. Well, I feel guilty. And my life is a mess. I'm going to be honest with you, I don't don't really see anything wrong with what I'm doing. I know, I I probably need forgiveness for it, but I don't really see anything wrong with it. Oh, here comes pastor. I I I won't tell him that. But secretly inside, I I really don't see anything wrong with it. You've not repented. No, you haven't. Because you've got to agree with what God has said. Now, listen, you don't necessarily have to agree with what I say, but you've got to agree with what God says. And hopefully I'm saying what God says. The majority of the time the story of Balaam is interesting because what Balaam said this Balaam Balaam would go to the Lord he was always testing God he was always testing his boundaries as to what he could get away with and then when God would call him on the carpet this is what Balaam would say he would say to the Lord well Lord if if I did something wrong if well then I'm sorry you know what that word if means if means I don't really think I did I don't really think I did anything wrong that's what if means. Well, if I, and, and, and it's not that if isn't always right. I mean, I'm quite sure that I've offended people along the way that I didn't know I offended. And so I probably said, well, if I offended you, I do apologize. The fact being is I, I didn't mean it or in, intend it. But truth of the matter is, is that if I did, I, I've often said, but truth of the matter is I did and I'm sorry. That's what we have to do with God. It's not, well, God, if I did something, then I'm sorry. No, I agree with you. I did something wrong. You're you're, you're in charge. You're the king. You're the Lord. You're the master. I did something wrong. You call the shots. I'm wrong. You're right. That is full repentance. No ifs, no ands, no buts. Full repentance. It means I change my mind as to what I think about this, and I agree with you. I agree with you on all these subjects. Number two, we've got to begin to teach true liberty we got to treat true liberty, not false liberty, not false freedom, but true liberty. Galatians 5.13, listen real carefully what Paul says here, it's interesting. He says, for you brethren, that means you and me, for you brethren have been called to liberty, or you've been called to freedom. Isn't that cool? We've been called to freedom. Only, he says, do not use that liberty or that freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. But through love, serve one another. So this is what he says. You've been set free, but your freedom isn't given to you so you can just do whatever you feel like you get to do. Freedom isn't about you serving your flesh and your selfishness and your selfish desires. It's about serving God and one another. We are set free to do the will of God. Balaam, Balaam, for instance, uh, you know, God would say it's okay to do this, but I really don't want you to do this. And Balaam oftentimes in the story would, would, would push the boundaries. He would take a mile when God only gave him an inch. Have you ever seen somebody justify something with scripture? I've watched people who have an alcohol addiction and, and they're drunk and they will look at me and say, well, you know, Jesus turned water into wine. And? And? 
Well, what that says is, is that don't you understand? Because I can find a verse that says, take a little wine for your stomach's sake. They've got more stomach issues than anybody in the city. I know people, people will go and they will sleep around and they'll have sex outside of their marriage covenants. And I've heard, I've heard this. I've heard guys and women say, well, you know, God, the word of God says he will meet all my needs and grant me the desire of my heart. You laugh, but I've heard it. I've watched people function in a spirit of greed. They have millions of dollars, millions of dollars. But you couldn't pry a $10 bill out of their hand for anything. But you'll hear them say, but God is prospering me. But yet none of it can get through you into the kingdom. So we've got to teach real liberty. God's setting you free from your finances. He's setting you free from immoralities he's setting you free from your flesh and debaucheries god isn't that good news the best news i can tell you is this every every you know saturday morning and sunday morning i wake up without a hangover hallelujah i don't have to take an aspirin or tylenol for it i just i can wake up if i have a hangover it's a holy ghost hangover that's the only one amen all right i gotta keep going number three We've got to declare complete obedience. Declare complete obedience. Partial obedience is still disobedience. When I was in Spartanburg, I had to sell a home in Spartanburg 10 years ago in order to move here to Charleston. And we had originally struck a deal with a gentleman who was going to buy the house. I won't tell you the whole deal, but the long and the short of it was he never had any intention from the very beginning of the contract. We didn't know this initially but we found out as we were in the middle of it he never had intention of fulfilling what he wanted to do uh, with our house and what happened was when we began to figure out that he was just stringing us along um, we began to attempt to enforce uh, you know the stipulations of the contract well what we learned out of that was is that a contract is about you know only as good as the person who signed it and what happens is, is that people begin to find loopholes in the contract in order to get out of that which they really don't want to do. We're living in an era of loophole Christianity. We want to find a loophole so we can sort of get out of the full obedience, you know, stuff. And so we're partially obedient. We may be obedient to the, what we consider the major stuff, but the Lord asks us to be completely obedient. And, and we've got to begin to declare that. And finally, number four... We've got to begin to speak total conversion. Total conversion. There's two words I want you to know. The first word is catharsis. The second word is conversion. Catharsis is when you experience a feeling that gives you some sense of release. That's catharsis. You experience an emotion which releases you from whatever it is that was going on inside of you. For instance, if you're feeling guilty, you might experience a catharsis, which perhaps it makes you cry, perhaps you know, it could be any one of a number of manifestations, but, but for whatever reason, it releases you from that feeling of guilt. Now, catharsis, while in and of itself, may not be wrong, but it's not conversion. Catharsis makes you feel better. Conversion makes you different. Are you with me? So people come. Let me say I give an altar call. People will come. Maybe they'll have tears. 
they'll say, you know, my life's a mess, I'm feeling guilty, I, need, I know I need this, I don't like the way I feel. And a lot of times something will happen, there'll be this emotion that will come, it will cause them to feel different. That's good, nothing wrong with that. However, what happens is we, we stop at the moment of feeling different and we go out and we aren't different. We felt different, but there's no difference. We've got to begin to declare and speak and teach conversion. Conversion is not just feeling different. It's being changed. It's being transformed. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, If any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things have passed away and all things have become new. So we need to begin to declare it. So, so what we do here at Legacy or what Pastor Bear does is I don't give you an opportunity to come feel better. I want you to come be transformed. I don't want you to just, you know, have a two-nostril alert and dip your eyes and, and feel a little better. Feeling a little better won't get you to a destiny, but conversion will get you to destiny. I want you to go down one way and come up another way. I want old man to go down, new man to jump up. We're not here to put new clothes on the same old person. We're here to change the person. And we've got to begin to believe that and speak that and preach that and declare that. Conversion, change, transformation. So we're not saying people come and feel better. We're saying be, change, transform. We're not saying just feel good in your sickness, but be healed from your sickness. Not just feel good in your addiction or bondage, but be free from your addiction and bondage. And this is where it starts, folks. We've got to start speaking that and believing that. Conversion, transformation, change. And the reason, the reason, and I'm done with this, the reason this was such a big issue to the Lord, the reason he says, I hate this. Why would Jesus look at a group of people who are going to church, they're reading their Bible, they say that they love him, but he says, I hate this. Why would he say that? That seems so out of character for the Lord. Why would he do that? This is the most important thing. He died on a cross, took upon all your burden, all your sin. He took upon every bondage, every addiction. He took upon the sins of the world, the sicknesses of the world. He bore it all, not so you would feel better, but so you wouldn't have to walk in it anymore. That's good news. It's not good news just to look at Jesus and say, well, that, that moves me emotionally. I don't want you moved emotionally. He did that so you could be changed. And we got to declare that. I don't want to just feel better in, in my chains. I don't want Shane just to feel better in his jail cell. I want him to be transformed in that jail cell. He does too, it sounds like. That's what it's all about. It's, it's, it's coming to the point where we're saying, Lord, I, I, I need, I don't need just a makeover. I, I need old man die, new man be raised up. And you begin to declare that and that fruit begins to be demonstrated. I, this is what I believe. I believe folks will flock to that. You know why? It's because even, even the most dumb, dumbest human being, that may not even be good English. I don't even think I did good English there. But you know what I mean. This, a stupid human being will eventually get that if all that's happening is from moment to moment I might feel a little better but ostensibly there's no change, 
they will eventually get there's got to be more than what I'm getting. And somebody's got to look them in the eye and say, I've got good news. You can be different. You can be changed. That's good news. Amen? Stand with me, will you? Thank you, Lord. Hey, guys, just go ahead. Don't put in the quiet times. Go ahead and put in let the church rise. I'm going to pray here in just a moment. Father, I ask right now in the name of Jesus, in the midst of your people, that you would put within us, Lord, that prophetic unction, that anointing that can only come from you, that will cause us, Lord, to declare, Lord, obedience, repentance, liberty, and conversion that brings reality to people's lives. Lord, we know we can't do it on our own. We can provide a program or a process, but unless there's an anointing and unless, Lord, your presence shows up, it won't ever happen. So that's why we need you on the scene. And I pray right now, Lord, Lord, that you'd not only work that in me, but that you'd work that in all the folks that are here. Lord, there right now, I don't know how many people are in the room, 175, maybe, I don't know. Lord, I, I don't know the number. But I pray right now for every single one of this number that you would put an anointing on them right now. That they might be able to speak with anointing whatever situation they are brought into in this city, much like Pergamos in some ways, so that we might lead people to true transformation. I pray you do that. Help us to do Help us to receive that. Lord, let us, let us know. We, we don't have to bear the responsibility of changing them. All we have to bear the responsibility of is allowing that sword to come from our mouth that can set them free. Lord, I pray right now for those in the building, Lord, that, that may not know you. They, they, they may be just playing like a Nicolation. I don't know. Lord, I've reached the place where sometimes I just say, I don't know. But Lord, I pray right now that, Lord, they wouldn't be trendy anymore, but they'd embrace the truth. You shall know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And he who the Son has set free is free indeed. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. Amen. Let's sing right now. Guys, you ready to roll? Give us, give us some heat on the, on the CD and, and let's sing. And we've been singing this song after every service. And let's let our voices rise up and let's sing it one more time before we are to release this morning. Let's do it. We are alive. Filled with your glorious light Out of the dark Into your marvelous light We are Oh! 
your people, I pray that, Lord, they would arise as the church. Lord, let, let the sword come forth, that enlivened word come out of their mouth that will set people free, that will break chains, that will break bondages, Lord, that will lead them to truth, that will cause them 
to know the great liberty that is found in Jesus Christ. Lord, I believe that you're calling us to this very thing. Much like Jesus when he stood and he said, the spirit of the Lord has come upon me and has anointed me to declare good news to the poor, to pronounce liberty to the captives, to open up blind eyes, deaf ears, to lead prisoners out of prison houses, to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. May it be the acceptable year of the Lord. And Lord, may we declare it in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. God bless you. Love each other. Encourage one another and you're released. Have a, have a great afternoon. Honor.